Tonight, we are shifting from um, our brief highlight of Martin Luther and the freedom of a Christian. I may come back to that later this spring because, you know, as we track through the spring, we're going to be at the 500th anniversary of this, that, and the other thing all the way through um, the Diod of Worms in April and then what happens in, in response kind of as when he's able to get out of town in May. So in any event, we can, we can kind of go back to Martin Luther and a little more New Testament and Paul. But believe me, with, with Isaiah, you get, you, know, you get to the New Testament and Paul very easily. Because I guess uh, some, we're going to look at some big picture things um, tonight and in the coming Wednesday so you can get some bearings on how to begin to understand some of this um, incredible scripture and beautiful, it's beautiful scripture. And, and, you know, you read certain parts of it and you say, oh, that's about Jesus. I know that's about Jesus because there's all kinds of hymns and Handel talked about, you know, and this, that, and the other thing. Or, you know, I've heard many of my preachers or I myself have studied the fact that this passage, hey, Jimmy, this passage is about, um, is about uh, Jesus or about the Messiah who's going to come. However, this is a really big book. And uh, in order to help and supplement what we're doing on Sunday with Isaiah, as well as, honestly, um, getting a handle on the rest of the Old Testament. Let's be honest. How many of you consider yourselves to be experts in the Old Testament? Probably not, right? I mean, you know, um, so it'll help me to the extent that Reed's able to be here, and even as he's in seminary studying Old Testament, it just helps more and more to kind of circle around these things from different angles. So we're going to look at some big picture things about Isaiah in the midst of the Old Testament, in the midst of God's story and God's gospel. Uh, I guess a huge big picture thing I would note to you is not necessarily dividing up years per se, okay, but in a general sense, Isaiah really is right there in the middle of the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And honestly, if you can't go over Isaiah, you know, you're going to miss a lot of, well, how did we get from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Okay? Uh, conversely, I think if we learn more about Isaiah, the prophet and the book, and I'll need to keep saying that because, you know, we're talking about two different entities here. They're related, but, you know, you talk about Isaiah the prophet, okay, and Isaiah the book. And I guess you could also say Isaiah's prophecies because the interesting thing about Isaiah is um, Isaiah just keeps going, okay? Isaiah actually connects all the way back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden. And he takes you all the way through the end of the book of Revelation and stuff that's way out beyond you and me right now, okay? Some of the prophets take you from, you know, one century to another or from their time to the time of Jesus. Isaiah's work in the whole spectrum of creation history. I mean, his, his, his wingspan is that big, which is amazing. Okay, he, he, really, he really does the whole thing. So uh, it's pretty spectacular. Um, I mean, it's spectacular when someone like John does it, 
But John had the benefit of being a disciple of Jesus, right? And being much further down the history line. When somebody like Isaiah, um, you know, 700 plus years before Jesus is talking about all this, that's incredible. You're talking about major revelation and inspiration from God. And also an incredibly faithful and brilliant prophet. So, um, you know, that's why you I think you've already heard me say on at least one Sunday, I consider Isaiah kind of the king of the prophets. It's true, Elijah is the, like, model prophet in some ways, and, and, and what he does in his ministry is a type of Christ more so than Isaiah. So you can make that argument. But on the other hand, as far as the theological wingspan, it's just without parallel with Isaiah. So, um, anybody have any questions about that? So, um, that being said, um, and by the way, hey, we have all of them there do. You know, Jeremiah is awesome, all, but, but Isaiah is just, I mean, remarkable. Okay, so uh, let's do, for, let's go ahead and do a little bit of Bible part first, and then I'm going to get into what's going on in the world of Isaiah, and we'll look at a few of these maps. So let's just see how we do. Everything sound good, Reed? Are we sounding okay? All right. So uh, with the little one-page handout, everybody has a copy, right? Okay, so big picture overview of understanding Isaiah. There's probably going to be some typos in this. I was doing this late this afternoon. I spent more time earlier today on the maps. Number one, the Old Testament, including Isaiah... And the history of Israel, Judah, and God's people in the context of the power of politics and spiritual warfare of the ancient Near East. We'll have to go and look at the map and get more into that part. But secondly, the structure, flow, and main issues and themes of the book of Isaiah. I'm not going to cover all that tonight. You've heard me mention, I, I can throw out a, a number of the main themes as I kind of make my way through these notes. But what I decided to type out for you is this. Um, this is just kind of rough off the top of my head, uh, main segments of Israel's history leading up to and through Isaiah and at least his former things, prophecies. Isaiah, if you're familiar with Isaiah, particularly Isaiah in the 40s chapters and on into the 60s chapters, refers pretty frequently and periodically by that part of the book to talking about former things and God, the Lord, talking through Isaiah, talks about former things and things to come, or new things. Again, bridging all the way over to a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, which takes you all the way to, you know, after the day of the Lord and the end of Revelation. Okay, so he, he's looking all the way out there. Another thing I would say about Isaiah that's really interesting is... Most of the Bible writers are speaking to their own generations slash generations, okay? Now, obviously, this is part of why it's in the Bible. It speaks not only to the people of their time, but also to subsequent people of God, including us, okay? But, um, for instance, even over in the New Testament, when Paul is talking to the church in Galatia, he's specifically addressing their issues in the Galatian church in the first century A.D., okay? 
Now, what he says has to do with us now. Okay. Um, most of the prophets in the Old Testament are speaking to their generations, the ones directly in front of them, to kings and to the people, the populace, directly in front of them. Now, they know that their word coming from the Lord particularly extends beyond that generation, but it's mainly directed to that generation. The thing that really gets you with Isaiah, and again, this is why his wingspan, this is another aspect of his wingspan being so great, is early on he's speaking primarily to the generations slash generations in front of him, Isaiah is, okay? In the late 8th century and early 7th century, because his ministry goes into, I, I read this as he gets into, you know, we'll talk about that later, but, but um, I read him as a little bit broader chronologically than some people do. Some people compact him to just 740 to 700. I'm reading him in the 740s and all the way into the early, um, early oh yeah, sorry, is this... I'll tell the number. You're good. Sorry. Um, so, um, yeah, sorry. I forgot about the camera and everything. All right. So, um, <laughs> okay, good. Hey, Bryn, we've got handouts for you. You're welcome. Okay. So, um, the First main part of Isaiah, he's mainly addressing, Isaiah is, people in the generations in front of him. Now, he's doing, he's giving prophecies about a son who's going to be born to us, okay, that clearly is out in front of us. But that's like what, you know, Micah does, okay? That's like what Jeremiah does. You know, in the future, God will create for him a new people. You know, he'll, he'll give them a new heart. He's going to make a new covenant. I mean, that's the way. So in other words, I, you know, I mean, inspired prophets speak about things that are well beyond the generation they're addressing, right? But they're mainly talking to the generation. But can you imagine, by the way, if I were preaching a sermon and I'm talking to you guys and all of a sudden I'm talking to, I'm just kind of ignoring y'all and speaking to, now you all, y'all who are going to be living in the 23rd century, I've got a message for you right now. That kind of freak you out on a Sunday morning, wouldn't it? Isaiah actually goes into that mode. When you get to the second or second and third portions of Isaiah, that's what he's doing. He does it a little bit early. He does it a lot later on. That, I mean, again, his wingspan is incredible. I mean, can you imagine that? Now, look. After the Chinese, the Chinese are going to defeat you guys, and the United States will be no more. But look, okay, I'm seeing out um, 24th century. Uh, look, you guys out there, here's what's going to happen. You're going to, can you imagine that? That's, he's doing that kind of thing. Um, so would you consider him to be a pretty inspired prophet? What do you think? All right, so anyway, um, but back to our basic main segments of Israel's history. Um, talking about Israel. And, of course, Isaiah, anytime you get into this part of the Old Testament, any, I mean, this segment of the Old Testament all the way through Jesus, you've got this issue of what are you talking about when you're talking about Israel? I said there's multiple dimensions of when I say Isaiah, I could be talking about the book, the prophet, his prophecies, 
definitely with Israel. Um, but anyway, broadly speaking, Israel. Uh, you got the patriarchs and Yahweh's covenant and covenant promises with Abraham, which are reiterated and developed with Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, also known as Israel, okay? Those are major covenant promises with the foundational covenant that God makes with Abraham. It will be helpful to remember that because when we get into even the first main segment of Isaiah, you've got an issue of the Lord bringing a covenant lawsuit against his unfaithful people. The covenant lawsuit has to do with the Sinai covenant. But what's going to happen, you've heard me talk about these covenants before in all kinds of Bible studies, and definitely in the Psalms I really got into this. Y'all will remember this, okay? The covenants with Abraham and with David are going to be key to redemption and God's grace overcoming Israel's total blowout under the Sinai covenant. Okay? That's really important. Um, so, anyway. Um, but the, with the patriarchs, you've got the covenant with Abraham that gets further elaborated and reiterated um, with Isaac and in particular with Jacob, who is literally given the name. You'll remember this, right? Israel. Okay? Then you've got the Exodus segment. And involved in the Exodus segment is not simply that they get out of Egypt, right? That's not the big deal. The big deal is um, Israel is reconstituted as God's people, okay? They're children of Abraham, again. They also are constituted specifically under God's Sinai or Horeb, that's the two different names for the mountain, um, covenant with the people of Israel, and by the way, as a specific swath of that, the sons of Aaron, uh, like Leviticus is really, you know, about that. Um, and remember, Deuteronomy, you know the way like today with the inauguration and everything, you've got all this reference to our United States Constitution. Remember, Deuteronomy is the Constitution of Israel. I mean, the book of Deuteronomy is the Constitution of Israel, the people of Israel. Um, and you've got specific offices relating to Deuteronomy and, the, and its links to the rest of Torah. And ultimately, although you may have kings, God is the ultimate king. It's a theocracy, right? So that's, that's that segment of the Old Testament. Are y'all tracking with me? Is everybody okay? Then you've got um, Joshua and the so-called conquest of the promised land. You may remember that they really, only <laughs> they really only get portions of the promised land, and it's not a really faithful or complete follow-through. Okay, But at least it's a lot better than the generation that dies in the desert does, right? Okay, so they're in the promised land now. And then you have the tribal period of the judges. And obviously, there are always tribes of Israel, but it becomes very apparent 
that you're dealing with tribes, right? During the period of the judges. Sometimes they align, sometimes they don't. You get crazy people just doing around. Not only do they do, everyone does what's right in his own eyes, but a bunch of folks in a bunch of situations, you think they're good and faithful, and then they make crazy oaths, and they do all kinds of stupid stuff, and they're jealous of each other, and tribes sometimes are willing to help other tribes, and sometimes they're not. It's, it's really not a very faithful or organized system, is it? No. Um, so, but, but in the tribal period of the judges, the great, the great bridge out of that and great culmination of that is um, Samuel, the final of the judges, who's also a prophet, Samuel, um, first anoints Saul. Remember this, when the people... Um, people kind of edge out to kind of violate their Deuteronomy covenant with God, and they want a king. And Samuel anoints Saul as prince of the people, which is really funny. That's a total another story for another day, but I always just think that's so amusing. You know, he, he, he refuses to use the term Melech. Um, so he anoints Saul, and, uh, you know, God invests Saul as the king. I mean, remember, Saul um, has uh, inspiration. You know, he's, he's in the spirit of the Lord. But how does that last re- really long? No, it doesn't. And so, you know, we get rid of Saul. Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. And we've kind of known all along, if we've been reading in uh, Genesis, you know, 49, right, that Judah is going to end up being, giving you the real human king. And we get David, um, son of Jesse, who becomes king. And you, you kind of had a kind of a united kingdom and frankly kind of just a confederacy of tribes under Saul. And one of the big issues is are we really going to be now a gathered, you know, unified people? And Theoretically, they are under David, but they're not really, okay? And in the map handout, um, I pointed out, I was looking back at, um, even when, like, after David's been king for a really long time, um, uh, Absalom, his son, revolts against David. Most of y'all remember that, right? Okay, so now... Is everybody loyal to David when Absalom tries to revolt against David? No. They're ready to get rid of David. And one of the things going on with this is that um, a lot of the northern tribes don't want to be under Judah. And they're not at all bought into this whole, you know, our capital city is David, you know, that Judites um, capital city that he took. They're even calling it the city of David. I mean, how outrageous is that, right? And um, we don't want to be under him anymore. And um, we've got a lot of the better land. We can be richer. We can be stronger. And um, so one move that they make is they go with David's son when David's son commits treason and leads a revolt against David. But then when when actually after Absalom is 
killed. And David is coming back. It was like, oh yeah, I remember this. When David is coming back into Judah, in Jerusalem, it says that the men of Judah went out to escort David. Now, by the way, even some of the men of Judah were not faithful to David, okay? And, um, and it says half, half of the people or the men of Israel went out to escort David. Now, if he's your king and his son has been killed and the revolt's over, what should you do? You should go out and escort your king back, right? And be part of the celebration. Even if you kind of were rooting against him for a while, you know, it's, t- <laughs> it's time to get with the program here, right? Well, even in that situation, half of Israel is not supporting David. So does it sound like to you that we have this great golden age of a united kingdom and everything's just trucking along? No, you know, we tend to think about that with David, but people back then were just like they are now, right? So, anyway, and then, of course, you get Solomon, and you have this, you know, fulfillment of the golden age with the building of the temple and wisdom for Solomon. But you remember, it's not just about Solomon being so bad and making all these foreign alliances, including up, we'll look at the map, but up with, you know, Tyre and Sidon and everything, um, Lebanon. But, but also... Um, because he, he, he builds his temple based on a lot of Lebanese principles, by the way, and, and Lebanese architecture and stuff, but sorry. But also, um, um, also, um, the tribes of Israel do not want to really be under Solomon. And so there are little revolts, and a guy named Jeroboam tries to pull one off when Solomon's still living. I mean, the most powerful king in the history of Israel. And Jeroboam tries to lead a revolution against him, right? And then after Solomon dies, and you get this foolish rich kid, you know, king's son, Rehoboam, coming to power, guess what happens? You guys know what happens if you know anything about the Old Testament. What happens? The northern tribes leave because they do come to Rehoboam and say, you know, if you will work with us as brothers and not be so oppressive the way your father Solomon was with taxation and, you know, drafting our sons into military and, you know, using our daughters for whatever you want to use them for. And if you, if you just treat us like real people, we're willing to be together with you. And you, you'll probably remember this, Rehoboam is advised by, you know, he has his yes men, just like some kings and presidents tend to like, you know, the guys who say, you're the greatest, bring it on, bring it on. The talk show host said, bring it on these people, so bring it on them. And so he comes out and he says, you think my dad was rough on you guys? You ain't seen nothing yet. And they say, we're out of here. So anyway, you have the split in the divided kingdom. So that's the end of the United Kingdom. And that then leads up to, it's not so much that split, but the deal is, as bad as Rehoboam is, I mean, Rehoboam's not good. Jeroboam decides this. You know what? And God had allowed Jeroboam to take the northern tribes off. But Jeroboam pushes the envelope and is totally disobedient to the Lord. And Jeroboam says, yeah... If I let my people keep going down to Jerusalem 
to that temple. You know that temple that is sanctioned by the law of God, you know, that we're supposed to have? If I let them all go down to Jerusalem, they're going to end up going back to the house of David because they're going to be down there worshiping and they're going to feel like that's their real spiritual home and this, that, and the other thing. So I've got a great idea. You know, here we are in basically Canaan anyway, and we all know that Yahweh is just another way of saying, hey, you know, just another way of saying Baal, right? And, uh, you know, golden calves are really impressive. So I will establish two temples, one towards my southern end down at Bethel, you know, where all the patriarchs had really important moments and where Jacob, you know, met the Lord. Um, I will, uh, I'll have a, a temple down at Bethel with a big golden calf. And I'll also build a temple up at Dan, you know, up, up by uh, the springs leading into the Jordan River, um, you know, heading up into Golan Heights. And I'll have a big temple up there with a big golden calf too. Now, does that sound very biblical or faithful to you guys? No. So anyway, and that's basically kind of the story of the Northern Kingdom. It doesn't get much better than that. It actually gets worse than that a lot of times in the Northern Kingdom. <laughs> yeah. So um, you got the divided kingdoms with Judah, little Judah with David's line, and Israel, Samaria with various short-lived dynasties. Now, the thing I want you to understand, and we're going to look at this with the maps, and you're going to need to understand this, is Israel is really the rich big brother. Judah and Jerusalem, although we think that's so great because that is the Lord's city, geographically, economically, all kinds of reasons, it's the little, little brother in this story. But, interestingly enough, Israel's the one you want if you're coming in and taking over the Fertile Crescent. You gotta have Israel. You gotta have the Via Maris area and the Jezreel Valley, you want that, okay? You don't care so much about Jerusalem. You know, you may just say, you know what, we're taking them out too. I don't want them bothering me and I don't want them bothering my trade or my troops. But they're not, that, that location is not essential and it's not worth much either. Okay, that's not where the money is. Um, so we'll come back to that. Anyway, um, the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, which is the larger and more wealthy and more militarily powerful, at least on its face, falls to the Assyrian Empire. We're going to be talking a lot about the Assyrian Empire because the Assyrian Empire has a lot, is like the big monster in the first part of Isaiah, and particularly chapters 1 through 12, and on into the latter part of the first part of Isaiah, okay? All right, then you get the, um, you know, the final fall. So that's in 722, 721, when um, the northern kingdom, when Samaria goes down. And the Assyrians make everybody else in the ancient world look like really sweet little sisters. The Assyrians are the worst of the worst. The Romans are very civilized and very nice compared to the Assyrians. The Assyrians are brutal. They specifically, in their, um, in their tablets and monuments celebrating their victories, laugh 
and slap themselves on the back because they make all the kings they go against uh, lose their control. As in, like, you know, bowels. They want that. That's the reputation they like. We will gouge your eyes out, cut your arms off, and then cut your head off right in front of you and right in front of your children. You want to fight us? Make my day. That's the Assyrians. I mean, these guys are brutal. These are the people who invented crucifixion. These are brutal people, okay? All right, so that's the Assyrians. And they're the ones who come and disperse. Their, their approach to conquer people is you take them out of their homes because if you leave them in their homes, in their homeland, they're going to end up trying to revolt against you. We don't want any of that. We may leave a few of you here, but we're going to take most of your strong and your best and your brightest out and spread them all over the place, not in a specific location. You're going to be gone. We're going to repopulate with some subservient people from our, our empire. That's what they do and intermarry and do all kinds of stuff to Samaria and the northern kingdom, okay? So you have little remnants of the northern tribes, but in a lot of sense it is the lost tribes of Israel, right? Okay, Because of Assyria, right? Y'all get that? That's who, that's who is on the horizon during uh, Isaiah's life. But Isaiah's already looking ahead and seeing Babylon and beyond Babylon. Because, by the way, the Assyrians don't last long-term. No empire lasts long-term, right? You know this, right? The, the British Empire didn't last long-term. The United States of America Empire will not last long-term. None of these empires last, you know, more than a few centuries. It just doesn't work that way, okay? That's history, okay? So, uh, anybody have any problem with that? That's reality check, folks. Okay, all right. So, um, anyway, the... Uh, so he's, he's looking at that monster. That is the monster that Judah is dealing with. Um, you get the final fall of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah to the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Um, and I say Neo-Babylonian because there's an earlier Babylonian Empire. We'll show you that on the maps. Um, but that goes way back, you know, the initial main civilizations. Um, and the resulting destruction of the, There's several conquests of Jerusalem. And when finally the puppet kings in the line of David revolt one last time, Jerusalem, the walls, and the temple are taken out. This is when Solomon's temple comes down in 586 B.C. And the Babylonians take, well, they're already, like in two previous phases, they're taking Jews into exile. Um, that's, Daniel's already in Babylon, okay, before 586. But they go ahead and take a bunch of the rest, Basically, anybody who has any capabilities at all is taken into exile in Babylon. But they're kept together, and they're allowed to have their worship, which is a lot better than the Assyrian deal, right? As bad as the Babylonian exile is, and you know the Jews wail about the Babylonian exile, compared to the Assyrian deal, I take Babylon any day of the week. And you know what? They get to come back, actually, after 70 years, because... I'm jumping ahead. I'll probably go back over this whatever months from now. But the Medes align with the Babylonians to take out the Assyrians. Okay? In the 7th century BC. 
But the Medes don't stay with the Babylonians, right? The Babylonians are riding high for a few decades. But the Medes then go with the Persians. So you remember, it's the Persians and the Medes who then take over the Fertile Crescent, right? So believe it or not, sometimes you align with the nation, and if they leave you, you're in trouble, right? That's what happens to the Babylonians, by the way. That's way ahead of our story tonight, but that's just a note, okay? So all of this should be kind of interesting because, like, as you look at world history, we're living in world history right now. This kind of stuff can happen in the 21st century. Everybody knows that, right? Okay, all right. So, all right, so uh, Jerusalem Falls. Now, major parts of the book of Isaiah. Um, the standard breakout would be chapters 1 through 39, as I've already referred to. That's like the first part, the first huge part of Isaiah. And that alone, if you just had Isaiah 1 through 39, including, by the way, the prophecies about the child who's going to be born to us, you would still call Isaiah, arguably, I'd probably still be in here arguing, you know what, this is probably the greatest prophet of the entire Old Testament. If you just stopped at 39. And then you get this shift with chapter 40. Um, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. You know, after all this stuff about judgment and the little apocalypse and everything, now... We get this. So that's why a typical break would be chapter 40, and you're moving towards um, the servant songs, 42, right, all the way through uh, the 50s, the early 50s, with the supreme, I mean, the supreme intense servant song being from, the la from 52 on into 53, the servant dies for our sins. He's pierced for our transgressions. Now, at that point, you're, as I said, you could stop at Isaiah 39, and I'm already saying this guy's probably the greatest of all the prophets. When you start getting into, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to speech, preach good news to the captive. I mean, this is the, all the way through the servant, the servant who dies for our sins. This is incredible prophecy. I mean, this is incredible and, and what's going on with Isaiah is Isaiah, arguably, from a Christian standpoint, is understanding that the Messiah, the king that he's been prophesying, is also going to be the fulfillment of and the completion of the service of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. Israel didn't fulfill that. Even Isaiah can't fulfill that. You certainly have the failed kings all the way through the kind of faithful but ultimately failed king Hezekiah. Well, who's going who's to fulfill this? as the servant of the Lord. Well, it's going to turn out it's going to be the anointed one that we've been prophesying about, but he's going to be the ultimate servant so much that he dies for the sins of his people. It's an incredible vision. I mean, that's way down the road as we move through Isaiah, but that's big stuff. And then you get all this movement towards, um, you know, things to come with light. Like, after, after coming down on the nations... You know, we get light to the nations. I mean, it's just incredible, the Gentiles. Okay, so that's, that's 38 through, oh, oh yeah, uh, 56 through 66. And um, my, my really favorite commentator on Isaiah, Matir, uh, he breaks it out a little bit differently, so we can talk about that as we move through Isaiah because he's pretty interesting, Matir is. I mean, um, and he breaks it out as 1 through 37, 
he, under the heading of the king, he goes ahead and says at 38, you've got the shift to the servant, okay? 38 through um, 55. And then, and I mean, same breakout towards the end, 56 through 66, the anointed conqueror, okay? Everybody see that on the little handout? Okay. So we'll talk about this a lot more, but I'm just trying to give you all big picture points of reference as we work with Isaiah. Do you all hear how big Isaiah is? I mean, but, but part of the goal here is to give you points of reference as we move through so you really get to know this book. And there's, there's a flow and a sequence in theological development and faith development going on with this that's really important to us. So chapters 1 through 39, or 1 through 37, I guess you could say, if you're going with the material breakout, mainly addresses, um, is mainly addressed directly to, this is what I was talking about earlier, Isaiah's own generations regarding former things, judgment, but with some messianic and other hopeful prophecies. And I, as I mentioned, for former things and things to come, terminology, you can see that all in the 40s and in and, and 65 as well. Um, we'll get into that later. I mean, we can't, like, read all of Isaiah tonight, so don't worry about that. But y'all get my, it, those are just kind of terms to remember. All right. Um, the book of Isaiah begins with, as I mentioned earlier, a covenant lawsuit in chapter 1 and or chapters 1 through 5. And we'll see this when we preach on uh, Isaiah 1. He calls upon uh, the heavens and the earth as his, um, to hear his case, the Lord's case, against his people. Because they're totally disobedient. Even though they go through religious frou-frou and act like they're his, they're not his at all. They're total hypocrites. And he's really upset the Lord is. And uh, we'll talk about that. But in any event, because um, is the universe obedient to God? Yes. Does the sun ever say, I'm going to stop shining because I don't want to, God? Hmm? No, right? So the Lord calls on his creation to say, can you see this was supposed to be the apex of my creation here, these people? And they've really let me down. Even the ones, the special ones I've called into covenant. And so he's bringing a lawsuit. But, but even as he's bringing a lawsuit, he wants to negotiate. He's like, come, let us reason together. Uh, you know, though your sin be like scarlet, I'll make your sin, I'll make you white as snow. But you just come to me. Do they come? No. Okay, so that, that's, that's the opening of Isaiah. Um, let's see. Um, and then, you know, you've got the call vision that I've been preaching about, chapter 6, on Sundays. Um, and, and that's kind of the first part of the first little sub-segment of Isaiah. Uh, with the introduction, the unfaithfulness of God's people, and with his call to repentance and reconciliation. And you've got a special call for a servant. However, is Isaiah the Messiah? Is the Isaiah the fulfillment of all service that the Lord needs? No. So you got to understand that, right? He's being called. He's going to serve, but he, we got to get to a different level of service. Okay. Um, and then um, you can add 7 through 12 to complete the first main segment of the book. I'm just reading from my notes here. With chapters 7 through 12 really highlighting the juxtaposition of the unfaithful king. I mean... Ahaz is the anointed king of Judah, right? 
So in, in one sense, he's the Messiah, but he's definitely not the Messiah, right? He's not the Messiah. He's trying to make, you know, alignments that God is telling him not to make. I mean, what happens is Ahaz, okay, this is an, another story. Let me just give you a nutshell on this. So Syria and Israel want Judah to join with them in a league against Assyria, the big monster, as it's rumbling again. Do you think, just from what I've told you so far, do you think that Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria can defeat Assyria, the way I've described Assyria? What do you think? How do you think that's going to go down? Probably not, right? But guess what? I mean, Ahaz decides to make alignment with Assyria. You, you know, like paying off the mafia so like the, the other people won't, you know, rob your house or something like that. Does that sound like a good plan? God tells him not to do it, right? Isaiah tells him not to do it. And so anyway, the Lord says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. The young woman, the virgin... The Alma, the young maiden, is going to give birth to a son, and he's going to be called Emmanuel. Do you want to listen to me, or do you want to try to do your own thing? That's Isaiah 7, right? Then we get to Isaiah 9. Again, this is in the first subsection of this whole thing about it flows right after the covenant lawsuit, right? Um, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow, you know, a light has dawned. By the sea, by the way of the sea, in Naphtali and Zebulun, in the land of the Gentiles. In other words, the northern tribes that are up there around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum in Jesus' time. Okay. Um, you know, everything's going to be, the, the, the uh, warrior's boot is going to be gone. Um, the warrior, you know, all this war stuff is going to be taken away because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9. Um, in the midst of all this unfaithfulness and Jotham's, you know, maneuvering, okay? And then you get to, you know, really amazing stuff with 11, from the stump of the root of Jesse, a shoot comes forth. From the family line of Jesse, this little shoot is going to pop up. And that's the answer. That's Isaiah 11. Who's he talking about with all this stuff? All the way back there, 7, 9, 11. Who's, who's Isaiah talking about? Jesus, right? Okay, so um, that's just back in the opening segment. As you can hear, I really could go all the way to just say, you know what, if we only had Isaiah 1 through 12, I would still be probably making the argument to you. This, this is possibly the greatest prophet in all the Old Testament, right? If you just had those 12 chapters. So anyway, that's that. Now, oops, we'll do a little bit on the maps. Um, we'll get to them next time. I hope this recording works. Yes, good, okay. All right, a little bit on the maps. So, um, Fertile Crescent. Everybody see the maps? Um, 
fertile crescent is mainly this green stuff going up here on the top map and then going down through Biblos and Tyre. Um, not really all the way over to Jericho, though Jericho is a really important trade, you know, side trade route. And then down to Egypt, okay? Uh, the fur, as you can see, uh, the Akkadians and Sargon of the Akkadians developed the first great empire. Now, by the way, the way, this, the way civilization works um, is you're talking about, with civilizations, you're literally talking about cities, okay? But what happens is when cities got big, they would take over other cities or make alignments with other cities or, and there's always going to be a boss city, okay? Uh, so strength, military strength, economic strength, uh, security, walled cities. Because by the way, if you're living out in tents, if you've got several thousand people with all kinds of gold and produce and stuff like that living out in tents, what happens to you? When, when the marauders come through, what happens to you? You're getting hit all the time, right? It's really important to be in the city. And by the way, be on the rolls of the city so when the really bad people come, you are accepted into the city for protection even if you have a farm outside of the city, which is why it's a big deal all through the Bible that your name is written in the citizenry register, right? Because when the bad guys come, you want to be able to be in the city, right? Inside the wall. Okay, so um, you get these cities developing down here. You see all these little cities down here. in the uh, Oh, this is the... Tigris and Euphrates River, okay? Over here, this green stuff. Um, Mari, Akkad. Y'all see that? Okay. Um, so that's, that's the first great civilization. Obviously, Egypt's a great civilization, too, that develops. Um, writing is significantly advanced. At, it's not on this map, but Ugarit. And also, Biblos. Like, our name Bible comes from Biblos because, like, the writing and stuff really develops here along the Mediterranean coast. Um, let me just jump ahead. Let's see. We'll come back to some of this. Jump to page six. Page six. I just want you to get this thing, and we'll come back to the other stuff later. I, I went with giving you the Bible overview, but this geography and economics is really important because you've got to understand this, to understand what's going on with the Assyrians. Okay, everybody see page six? Okay, just look at that, because that is a, an aerial view photo. Um, you see the Mediterranean Sea, right? And by the way, the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea is where you want to be for trade and commerce. It's really important. You want to get out to the Mediterranean Sea, okay? Um, you've got the Carmel Mountains. You see that down kind of to the right, okay? And then you've got this thing shooting off. Oh, by the way, you have Megiddo. Everybody see Megiddo there? That little city fortification thing? It's a fortification. It's a fortified place of Solomon, by the way. Um, anybody ever heard of Armageddon? That's Har, as in the hill of Megiddo, okay? And all these great battles take place, I mean, across history in that Jezreel Valley there, which is also the breadbasket of Israel, including present-day Israel. That's where most of the good stuff is grown. Now, you get grapes, and you get sheep, okay, and goats, sheep and goats, and olives, and a few little, you know, garden, you know, garden stuff in, up in the hill country. 
Jerusalem is in the hill country. So just look at this map. I just really want you to get this. This Jezreel Valley, this, as you can see, this is talking about present-day Israel's breadbasket. That's all part of the northern kingdom. You have to go over. See that Jordan River over there? You start going down south of there towards the Dead Sea, and, and, and you're going basically by, you know, near Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem is up in these hills down here. This is where you want to go. So let me give you one other one, um, just looking at this. Now, this is going to confuse you a little bit, but look at page five. I mean, just to look at it initially. I want you to see the land bridge. So you remember the way you had the Tigris and Euphrates in what is present-day Iraq and going down to the Persian Gulf? It's obvious that that's really fertile, right? And Egypt's really fertile. But, but look here. Okay, so you go along... Um, you see Sidon and Tyre and Akko. So Sidon and Tyre in present-day Lebanon. Um, and then you get down to present-day Israel. Okay? But, but just notice, you see how that's kind of green, greenish there? And obviously you're tracking along with the Mediterranean, right? And then you go down to Jaffa, which was the one port of Israel. Okay? until Herod developed Caesarea Maritima, which is up there where it says Caesarea M there. But it wasn't a port. He had to build, he had to construct the port, okay? It wasn't a natural port. Jaffa was. And then you get down to the Philistine cities on the coast of Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Y'all see those? Those are still here. I mean, this is a, like a current map, okay? This is a Google map. Um, and then you see that you go along, and you got a little bit of green, and you got the Mediterranean Sea. Y'all see that? And you get, you know, and by the way, to the right, after Kadesh Barnea, is the Sinai Desert. And you see way up north where it says desert? Y'all see that way up there? So, if you're going to bring trade, commerce, your grandchildren, or an army that you need to feed and water the horses for, do you want to go through all this desert stuff? What do you think? No, what do you want to be successful <coughs> both for a military campaign and to develop an empire, is you need to control this little thing here. Do y'all see that? So, do you understand that... Oh, oh, let me just go ahead and take you back. Okay, the last page, last page, what I've just been showing you, focus in on this. i got a little version of this land bridge up top on the left. And then I've got kind of a, a focused-in aerial photo here. Now, do you see that? Um, see where it says Tyre? Okay. And do you see where it says um, Akko? Okay. So the Via Maris can go up two different ways. There's a cut through that heads toward Damascus going through the Sea of Galilee, and you can also stay along um, the Mediterranean and, and cut up north of the Sea of Galilee. But classically, one of the two routes, because it forks, one of the two routes of the way of the sea, the Via Maris, which you see is tracking where you want to go, right? Um, you see the Via Maris here, the cut through to go over, if, if you don't want to stay on the coast, is to go to the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Do y'all see that there? The Via Maris there, 
up on the top right. And um, what does it say there? It says Sea of Galilee, little, what does it say big there? The Church of the Beatitudes, because that's right outside of Capernaum, which is like Isaiah 9 is, is talking about along the way of the sea, this person emerges who's the Messiah, right? Who's the son born to us. And um, his ministry starts from the way of the sea. Uh, who, who, whom do you know that ministered on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, like around Capernaum? Ever heard of anybody who was up there, along the way of the sea there? Who, who ministered up there? Jesus. Okay, y'all getting the geography here, right? So two different things I want to highlight, and we'll come back to this, is one, it's obvious that the Assyrians want to control this area here, right? Because of what I just described to you, economically, militarily, everything else. And, interestingly enough, Isaiah is going to prophesy that up there, which is going to be, by the way, taken out by the Assyrians as far as Israelite, you know, civilization. Um, Isaiah's already seeing ahead to somehow up there in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, amazingly enough, this, this son is going to come to us for our salvation. It's incredible, right? And the other thing is, again, Assyria has, has to have. It needs Syria with Damascus, okay? It needs Lebanon. It needs Tyre and Sidon. These are just obvious. I mean, if it's going to be the biggest, wealthiest, baddest empire in history, it's going to have to have that swath there, cutting all the way down to, and its big goal is to also take Egypt. Israel is right in the path. Lebanon and Syria are right in the path. Judah, not so much. And Judah's going to survive, although it's going to get really beaten up. And Lachish, the second largest city of Judah, is going to be totally destroyed. And the, the Jews there are going to be totally, they're going to get beheaded. They're, they're brutalized there at Lachish. But Jerusalem kind of hangs on by a hair. But uh, that's what's going on in Isaiah's. By the time Isaiah is through with his prophesying, all that stuff has taken place. But he sees all this coming. Hosea and Joel up in the northern kingdom, they're telling the kings up there. You think you've got it nice now, but there's, this is a brief respite. The Assyrians were quiescent for about 60 years, and when Tiglath-Pileser takes over in four, uh, 745, he's coming, and he comes fast, and he comes brutally to Damascus first and then down to Israel. And you can see strategically why he would do that, right? To go down to Egypt. Everybody see? So that's what I've been kind of when I talk about this stuff, that's what I'm talking about. Everybody with me? So you have a bigger picture of Isaiah, the history, hopefully, a little bit, and definitely the book, right? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for our study of your word, and Lord, continue to help us grow in understanding what you're teaching us um, about your son, most importantly, Jesus, our Savior, and about um, how to live and follow you faithfully, including in our time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all for being with us.